Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the podcast where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. If you've been listening to our show this past month, you'll know that coronavirus is basically the only thing we've been thinking about. We've tried to explore how this global pandemic is influencing every aspect of our lives. Our bodies, of course, our economy, our civil liberties, our emotions, even how we cook. One topic, though, that we haven't yet covered is the question of treatment that takes on the virus directly. That may be one way for us to solve the corona problem, although it also may not be, depending on the science. We may simply have to depend, ultimately, on social isolation to make the virus go down. So how far are we along the way to determining what drugs work here? Are the treatments that have gotten a lot of publicity actually working? Are they plausible? Have the studies that have been released actually demonstrated efficacy? Or are we much too early in the process to know how things are going to work out? If we find a treatment, will it be scalable? Here to discuss all of this with me is Dr. Angela Rasmussen. She's a research scientist and virologist at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. And she's worked extensively on viruses and Ebola. Angela, first of all, thank you for taking the time to be here with us. What treatments are out there now that are being studied that you think potentially hold some promise? And we're not talking about vaccines at all today. We're going to start by talking just about treatments. 
Right. So there are several treatments um, in clinical trials right now. It's important to note that there are no treatments at this time that have been demonstrated to be effective and safe for treating COVID-19. The main drugs that I've been hearing about are three different drug regimens. So there is um, a drug called remdesivir that uh, was tested for Ebola, and it wasn't effective for Ebola, but it's a fairly broad-spectrum antiviral drug, and it has shown promise against uh, MERS coronavirus in animals and against this coronavirus, SARS coronavirus 2, in uh, cell culture experiments. So that drug is being tested. Um, It's not currently approved for use in humans, um, but there is quite a bit of safety data that was gathered during the trials for Ebola. So if that drug um, does prove to be effective in a controlled trial, it should be relatively uh, quick process to get it out to the public. Another drug that's being looked at is hydroxychloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug that's also used to treat rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Um, Sometimes that has uh, been tested with the antibiotic azithromycin. There was a lot of press about this also because President Trump uh, has asserted that this is a game-changing miracle drug. It's really important to note that the controlled studies in a sufficient number of patients to determine whether or not it's effective are still ongoing. So the only papers that have been out about chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine have used very, very small numbers of patients. And uh, there were some issues with the trial design in terms of the controls that were used uh, to evaluate its efficacy. So despite what uh, we've heard some politicians talking about, those drugs are not proven at this time uh, to be effective at treating COVID. And then finally, um, they're also looking at a combination of HIV protease inhibitors. And these drugs were chosen uh, because they showed some efficacy anecdotally against SARS Classic. And so people thought that they might be useful here. Additionally, they were used um, with an anti-influenza drug to treat a patient in Thailand. That patient recovered, so they concluded that it might have had an effect. But as with the other drugs that I just mentioned, um, it's critical to test those in a large group of patients with proper controls to determine if they actually are effective or not. A smaller clinical trial um, done in China that was controlled and randomized Uh, looked at those two HIV drugs and saw no effect in overall outcome, meaning that whether a patient received those drugs or just supportive care, uh, there was no difference in the number of patients that eventually um, died from severe COVID disease. So the WHO is evaluating that drug combination as well in a larger group of patients to see if at a population level that would have a more... um, a greater impact in terms of treating COVID. So those are the three drug regimens that have advanced the furthest in clinical trials. And we should start seeing some trial data from those, I would think, in the next couple months uh, so that we can have a better idea of whether or not some of these existing drugs can be repurposed for treating COVID. Why is the time scale months for clinical trials here? I mean, the course of the disease is not that long. And of course, ordinarily, one would want to have very careful experimental design and one would want to have peer review of the studies and so forth and so on. 
But under crisis conditions, the ordinary person, and I'm treating myself as that here, thinks, you know, why can't the duration of the study just be as long as the course of the disease runs? And even if you run it a couple of times, that doesn't mean that it has to take months. So why are we talking about months? There are several factors. In order to demonstrate efficacy, you really need to have larger patient groups. So people in different places are doing different things. They are in different environments uh, and they have different levels of hospital care. And also genetically, we're very different from one another. There's a lot of individual to individual variation in the population. So when you are trying to enroll patients in a clinical trial, you're going to be seeing people coming from all different sorts of circumstances with all different kinds of potentially confounding variables. Um, so pre-existing medical conditions, people are going to be different ages. They're going to be both male and female. Each case will be different. So in order to understand how these drugs work in general for a person off the street, you really need to look at a lot of people. And that just takes a lot of time. Another issue is the ethics of it. Um, so when clinical trials are done, you need to have informed consent from all of those patients. And patients are allowed to drop out of the trial at any time. In addition, um, many clinical trials will have uh, criteria for patients to be removed from the trial if it appears that they are being harmed by the trial itself. Let's say somebody has an allergic reaction to an experimental drug. You would not want to continue treating that patient with that drug because that could potentially harm them. So in order to get these types of numbers that we really need um, to apply the knowledge of whether a drug is effective or not, and safe um, to a large population of people, you just really need to enroll a lot of patients and they have to be able to remain in the trial. Um, and you have to do quite a lot of statistical analysis to make sure that you're accounting for all of these potential variables that a large diverse population of people bring. Everything you just said seems completely logical and appropriate for a well-designed clinical trial of a drug. It makes me very happy and relieved to think that under ordinary circumstances, when scientists are checking on the efficacy of a new potential treatment, they do everything you've said, large sample size, sophisticated statistical analysis, ethical constraints in allowing people to withdraw. All of that makes perfect sense. None of that makes sense to me under crisis conditions. And help me out here because my instincts are clearly at odds with that of at least some of the scientific community here. But it just seems very difficult for me to get my head around the idea that we should proceed as normal when we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, certainly, this has been accelerated. The process of approving the trial, of coordinating the trial has been accelerated. Another thing that is being done sort of to balance potential benefit of these drugs for patients who need it most, who don't have time to wait for a clinical trial, because as you pointed out, it is a public health crisis. The FDA has approved uh, the use of hydroxychloroquine prescriptions off-label for compassionate use um, in patients that really have nothing left to lose, that patients who will die without some kind of intervention. So there is a balance between doing these types of, you know, randomized, properly controlled, properly statistically powered clinical trials as well as access to the drugs for patients who really have nothing left to lose. And well, even if they don't benefit, um, it's worth a try. 
the, the danger in that is that when people are deciding to self-medicate or demanding these prescriptions off-label uh, for disease that's potentially not very severe, that's the type of thing that, that should be avoided. But um, you are correct that it is a crisis and that patients who are in the most dire condition um, with the most severe need should have access to some of these experimental medications, whether we have proof that they work or not. We'll be back in just a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. I now want to ask you about the French study, which I myself uh, read, where on a very, very small sample size, there were fewer than 45 people in the entire trial. And of those, only a very, very small number, I think only six, if I remember correctly, got the particular combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin together. Um, but that study was exciting, and you could sort of understand why there was such a reaction to it, even from the president, by virtue of the fact that among that tiny number of people, those six people, the study reported 
that all had been completely cleared of uh, signs of the virus when they studied them quite a short time later, something like six days later. I mean, reading that study shows you what got everybody excited. It also shows you the limitations of the study. What do you think of as the real problem with that study, if there is one? Oh, boy, there are several problems with that study. One of the issues were the controls that were selected for that study. They were patients from a different institution. And usually when you're doing a study like that, you want to use patients um, from the same cohort of patients, so the same patient pool that you're treating people in. They effectively, from what I can tell, um, selected patients, just other patients to compare it to. And that's not really a great comparison. Also, as you pointed out, it was very small. So when you're talking about six patients out of a group of, I think there were 20 in the total treatment group, that is not uh, sufficiently powered to make any conclusions at all. Those patients could have cleared the virus on their own. Um, They could have gotten better. We just can't say because not enough patients were investigated. There are some other issues as well. One issue is that the journal that that paper was originally published in after a very short time of being a preprint is uh, controlled. The editor-in-chief of that journal is the senior author of the paper, (laughs) Didier Raoul. And uh, furthermore, um, Elizabeth Beek from Microbiome Digest has pointed out that uh, there are some issues with his publication record. Um, There are some papers that he has published with questionable data, and not necessarily that that indicates that he's um, falsifying data or or engaging in any intentionally nefarious work, but some questions have been raised about the research integrity in general of papers that he has authored. And just the conflict of interest um, with you know him being the editor-in-chief of the journal that this was rushed to publication in uh, does not do a lot to support the notion that the trial was um, rigorously evaluated by a panel of um, non-conflicted peers. So there are a lot of questions about that particular investigator and the studies coming out of his group, um, as well as some of the claims that he has made on social media and in the media, which is, you know, has sort of fueled this. um, They're miracle drugs and they're going to solve everything. There are both scientific as well as really sort of ethical reasons why um, that work may be somewhat problematic. So we've now evaluated that study, and you've called it significantly into question in a very helpful way. There's a lot there that I had not known before and that I think is not generally available outside of the, the expert sphere. However, and here's the big however, if I were someone who were very sick with coronavirus right now, or you know, pretty sick, significant shortness of breath, enough to have to be admitted to a hospital— and I had to choose among available options, I'm pretty sure that I would ask for this treatment combination, not because I would be convinced of the rigor of the study, just because there isn't any really other option out there. And indeed, you know, just anecdotally, someone whom I know who was in the hospital, was really sick, was on a ventilator in New York, was actually given this treatment. And I thought to myself, good. So I guess what I'm wondering is about a kind of paradox, right? I mean, here you are saying the science is bad, and inadequate. And yet it still might be better evidence than anything else we have, and therefore a reason to give it a try in an individual case. Now, I don't think I'm crazy, am I? I mean, is that what you would do if you were 
suddenly hospitalized or someone close to you were suddenly hospitalized with a serious case? I mean, I think that for that reason, this has been used in those circumstances. That would be an appropriate circumstance in which to use this. But with the caveat that that is definitely a decision for the physician treating a particular patient to make. There may be counterindications for taking either of those medications. I have read that there are potentially drug interactions that can occur between azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine specifically. I'm not sure personally why for the rationale of including azithromycin other than it's an antibiotic that could potentially treat secondary bacterial infections, which are probably playing a big role in the most severe patients. So it's possible that a different drug besides azithromycin for somebody, for example, who might be allergic to azithromycin or have a bad reaction to azithromycin or have a drug interaction problem, they could be given potentially a different antibiotic. And those would all be decisions that would be made by the physician treating the patient in each individual circumstance. I agree with you that for patients who are on a ventilator where there is no other option, a physician should be able to make a decision about whether to treat that patient with an unproven medication uh, that is available and FDA-approved for other uses. That is a really individual decision that needs to be made in terms of patient-physician care that's separate from doing a large-scale clinical trial to determine definitively whether those drugs actually work. You mentioned that azithromycin is a a broad-spectrum antibiotic. It's not an antiviral agent. And so you were speculating that, you know, if it's having an effect, maybe the effect that it's just having is helping to deal with whatever other bacterial infections may be going on simultaneous to the viral infection. What's the mechanism for hydroxychloroquine? That is an antiviral agent, right? So what is the mechanism, if you can explain it in, in layperson's terms for us, by which that's supposed to have an effect, if it is indeed having an effect? So that's not known. Um, Hydroxychloroquine is actually an anti-malarial, and malaria parasites are not viruses, actually. They're um, single-celled parasitic organisms. A group in China looked at the effect of chloroquine, which is a related drug, um, in vitro on SARS coronavirus and SARS coronavirus 2 replication. And they speculate that the block occurs during the entry process. So when a virus infects a cell, the virus attaches to a host receptor and is taken up inside the cell in a compartment called an endosome. In order for the virus to begin replicating its genome, which is a critical step in viral replication, the virus has to escape essentially from that endosomal compartment. That escape process is triggered by the acidification of the endosome. So the endosome pH drops, and that provides a chemical environment in which the virus can fuse with the endosomal membrane and get inside the cell. What hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine do is they prevent endosomal acidification, and that has been proposed as a mechanism for how it would act as an antiviral drug. So it prevents the virus from actually getting into the part of the cell that it's going to replicate in by blocking that acidification process and keeping it trapped in those endosomes. Another one of the potential treatments that's being tested that you mentioned is remdesivir, an antiviral drug that I think you said did not work against Ebola, but did have some effects against MERS. Tell us a little bit about 
this drug and why it's thought that it might actually be effective against this coronavirus? So remdesivir is a broad-spectrum antiviral drug that's in a class of drugs called nucleoside analogs. And they are a chemical mimic of um, the ATCG molecules that make up DNA or RNA. Technically, in RNA, it's U instead of T, but they're called nucleoside bases. And most people are familiar with, you know, the genetic code, um, which is made up of A, T, Cs, and Gs, um, and in thymine, cytosine, and guanidine. And these, when the virus genome is replicating, these are put by an enzyme called, uh, in the case of viruses, an RNA polymerase. They are put into a chain, and that makes the new genetic material. Um, What these nucleoside analogs do is they get inserted into this chain instead of the ATC or G that is actually supposed to be there, and that can cause um, the genome to be catastrophically mutated effectively with these non-functional base analogs. It's also been proposed that these nucleoside analog drugs can also activate certain innate antiviral signaling pathways, and they can also interfere with the activity of the polymerase enzyme that is making the new copies of RNA in the case of coronavirus. So these drugs did show promise um, in preclinical studies against Ebola, Um, but then it turned out not to work in actual Ebola patients. There might be some some reasons for that that don't actually have to do necessarily with the mechanism of the drug. One thing about Ebola patients is that they aren't necessarily coming into an Ebola treatment unit or ETU when they are early on in infection. Oftentimes, when an Ebola patient is symptomatic, um, they will show up at the ETU after they're already very sick. And I study Ebola. I study the host response to Ebola. In my animal models that I study, once those animals have sort of reached a point of no return in terms of uh, their host response just being completely screwed up by systemic Ebola infection, then targeting the virus's ability to replicate may not be very helpful. And I, I wonder if that is why in patient trials, why remdesivir was not as effective as it appeared to be in preclinical trials. Because often in preclinical trials, when you're working with an animal model, you know exactly how much that animal was infected with um, and at what time that animal was infected. People don't necessarily know when they got infected. So uh, remdesivir's ability to treat Ebola patients will have a lot to do with at what point in the infection you can treat them. For COVID, um, we know that remdesivir has some efficacy against SARS coronavirus 2 in vitro in cultured cells. And we know that it seems effective in non-human primates that were infected with MERS coronavirus, which is another related coronavirus that causes a similar type of disease. Whether it will work in patients, I think will be dependent on when those patients are diagnosed. So remdesivir treatment as a last resort for patients who are already severely ill may or may not have an effect. If remdesivir does work by triggering some of these antiviral immune responses, it's possible that some of those responses may be protective. We just don't know until we are able to test this. But that is why it's so important to test these treatments on people 
um, at different stages of the disease and with different clinical manifestations of the disease because we really need to know if, for example, remdesivir does appear to work if treatment begins very early, then we need to know that so that patients can begin treatment um, initially when they are diagnosed rather than waiting for them to progress to severe disease, for example. So those have a lot of implications for the types of decisions that physicians and clinicians will make um, if that drug does prove to be effective. Just a quick mention of the HIV protease inhibitors, which in one patient seem to maybe anecdotally have an effect What would the theory of the mechanism be there, and what's your virological instinct about the probabilities of that approach panning out? So I've I've seen a couple preprints that have suggested using in silico, meaning in computers analysis alone, showing that there may be some interaction with the M1 protease of coronaviruses. I'm not clear if that is the mechanism. I haven't personally seen data to suggest that those protease inhibitors that normally target the HIV proteases also would have an impact on the coronavirus protease. It's certainly possible. Many proteases have conserved structural features uh, in terms of how they work. I haven't seen any data, though, that conclusively demonstrates the mechanism by which those HIV protease inhibitors would be functional. Angela, I'm really grateful to you for your time. Before I let you go, I just want to ask, is there something I'm not asking you that I should be asking you with respect to the treatments that are out there? Is there some important point that you think we need to hear that I haven't directed you towards? I think the only important point that I like to get across is that the trials that are proceeding now are going as fast as they can but it really is critical to show efficacy. And um, another great example of this is Ebola. So during the West African Ebola outbreak, a number of patients that were evacuated from West Africa were then treated with an experimental drug called ZMAP that everybody heard about. And many of those patients recovered and uh, people attributed that to look at wonderful ZMAP, it works so well. ZMAP failed the same clinical trial that remdesivir did. It now appears quite clear that getting just supportive care, so fluids, um, potentially uh, breathing support, other types of treatments for the symptoms of Ebola disease, that type of supportive hospital care has been itself effective at really improving the case fatality rates for Ebola. So it's possible that all those patients that got ZMAP who were all, you know, in the United States for the most part or Europe in state-of-the-art ICUs, uh, getting world-class supportive care, that may have had more of an impact than ZMAP. But because it was a handful of patients with no control group, we couldn't evaluate ZMAP. So people, I think, sort of jumped to the conclusion that it was ZMAP that was doing this and not the other different types of care that those patients were receiving. So we just need to be really careful about attributing positive outcomes to the wrong thing, lest, you know, people start prescribing these drugs widely. They don't do anything. It gives people a false sense of security, and it could ultimately be more harmful to public health than helpful. Angela, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your extremely clear-headed analysis and your excellent way of making it all understandable to even to a layman like me. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on and giving me the opportunity to talk to your listeners about this. I learned a lot from talking to Dr. Angela Rasmussen. 
In particular, she was extremely clear about the necessity of patience and good scientific technique in trying to figure out what treatment actually will respond to the novel coronavirus in a way that works. Like a lot of people, I'm eager for there to be a treatment that works right away. And you might have heard in my voice some wish, some fantasy, that we could sidestep some of the most slow-moving and precise scientific features of experimentation in order to get to a treatment. But Angela made it extremely clear that the danger in doing so is that we might end up mistakenly treating people with drugs that aren't actually solving the problem, a phenomenon that she noted did happen in some instances in Ebola response. That means that we need to do the slow, careful science in order to make sure that people are cured. And in the meantime, physicians will keep on using experimental treatments, even if they don't know that they work for certain, in the hopes that they will have some effect. That combination makes me a little more heartened, but at the same time, my ultimate takeaway from listening to Angela is that randomness is a real risk. It is simply possible that we don't have immediately to hand any treatment that will effectively address the health challenges that we're facing. And if that's so, it's social distancing for all of us, and for a lot longer. If there's progress with respect to any of these treatments, you can be sure we'll discuss that issue and get behind the story of the science. Until I speak to you next time, be careful, be safe, be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zui Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.